0: Thank you. You may be seated. In the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son cleanses from all sin. Amen. And that is the message, the message of hope that we celebrate today. And by the grace of God will be the only message that is ever shared here from this place as the answer for our great need. That is the blood of Jesus Christ applied and through him The free forgiveness of all sin, new life in Him. What a celebration today. Thank you, Doug and team, for leading us in worship. Our hearts have been touched. And welcome to all of you, those that are joining us online. And we are here practicing for heaven. (laughs) Because eternity will not be long enough for us to sing the praises of Jesus and His sacrifice. To praise the Lamb that was slain and now lie forevermore. And so that blood of Jesus is alone our source of victory, right? It's our only source of victory. And that is what we are celebrating in our series through the Book of Romans. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to take that. Turn to the passage that was read earlier uh, by Jeff. As we're looking at chapter 7, if you're our guest this morning, thank you for being with us. We are involved in a journey through this wonderful epistle. The book of Romans in the New Testament has well been called the Magna Carta of our Christian liberty. It is the constitution of our faith. And because of Jesus, uh, our battles... And we have battles, don't we? (laughs) But as believers in Jesus, our battles are not ultimately battles for victory. They are battles from victory. (laughs) From victory. His victory. And we're going to see that in Romans chapter 7. If you turn there. And as you're turning there, we'll remind you of our services later this afternoon for our members at 4 30 a members meetings we welcome some new members uh, into our fellowship also give an update of, about our building program and the uh, process on the children's ministry building so we'll update about that and then at five o'clock uh, we at the first Sunday of uh, every month is our regular schedule to have Uh, what we call here a family gathering. And that is where, yes, we're able to gather and talk about some things that are very important to the ministry of our church. And here in February every year, we have an important focus on missions. The last week of this month, uh, last begin the last Sunday of February, then to the first Sunday of March, we have our Global Missions Week, and we are excited for the open doors that we're going to be able to learn about and to also to share with others and embrace. But I want to, uh, tonight to talk to us about, as a church family, about the calling the Lord has on us as his people, as his church, uh, to be a glocal church and glocal believers in Christ. Now, I don't know if that word glocal is a word or not. I just made it one. The Apostle Paul did it many times. I can do it once in a while, I guess. But what's it mean in this day and age to be a glocal church and actually to begin to think of you, your life as an individual as a glocal church? believer in Jesus it has incredible transformational power in our minds when we see ourselves as a church and as believers that way And so we're going to talk about that tonight at five o'clock in our our family gathering I encourage you to participate we will be streaming that for those who can't come now you are there in Romans chapter 7 and we recognize as we said that we do have battles But always remembering that through Jesus, the war has been won, right? We battle, but the war has been won. One of the greatest battles that the United States ever involved in, very important battle, the Battle of New Orleans. I remember when I was a little child listening to some records. Some of you don't know what a record is. You can Google that, okay? (laughs) A little plastic disc goes round round, but sound comes out. Amazing. (laughs) There was a song called The Battle of New Orleans, and I I memorized the words of that, thought I was real cute. Mom didn't think it was so cute at times, but so I'd sing that song about the Battle of New Orleans and how... 1814. General Jackson took this trip. And I'll stop there, okay? <laughs> but the Battle of New Orleans was fought on January 8, 1815. And it was a monumental victory for the American forces at the end of the War of 1812 with Great Britain. And it was led, yes, by Tennessee's own general, Andrew Jackson. And it was an astounding victory. The United States total casualties, 71. The British casualties, 2037. Incredible victory. But something very unique about the Battle of New Orleans it was fought after the war was over. <laughs> because on December, 4th, December 24th, 1814, 15 days earlier, the war had been brought to a close and, by the peace treaty of the Treaty of Ghent. <laughs> so, in a sense, that battle was not for victory, it was actually from victory. Not for victory, but from victory. And what I want us to realize this morning, friends, is that our commander-in-chief, all alone, won the victory for his people. He proclaimed that victory with a mighty shout, It is finished. And that victory was confirmed by an empty tomb when he rose victoriously over death. And yet, though our Lord has won the victory and he's won the victory for us, we must still battle. We must still battle, but listen carefully, what we're going to learn this morning and it can transform your life in your struggles is the reality we do not battle for our freedom. We battle from our freedom. We battle from our freedom. And so today, in Romans chapter 7, here's what I want us to think about. This theme that Paul shares, and it is as real as our very existence this day. Think about this, the battles of the free. The battles of the free. In Romans 7, Paul shares with us about the battles of people who are free in Christ there are three main ways we're going to look at this Paul shares first of all our freedom secondly our battles and thirdly our victory our freedom our battles our victory and if you are a Christian today each one of these is absolutely true. Now, the first of all, let's look. Paul begins with our freedom. Our freedom from the law. Our freedom from the law. He's repeated this over and over in chapters 5 and 6. Now in chapter 7. And he's actually going to take it into chapter 8. But he has stated it. No more clearly than he does in verse 6. I want you to look at chapter 7, verse 6. Paul says this But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written. Code. Now, Paul is saying this that as believers, we have been freed from the law, the curse of the law upon those who do not keep it. We are freed because of Jesus, remember? He won the battle, right? And now, though, we are still serving the Lord, Paul says, but we're not serving it, serving the Lord. From the old way of the law, but of a new way by the life in the Spirit. Now, as Paul says this, he immediately is going to address two concerns that people have, two concerns, and he wants to make sure they understand it. So, here's the first concern he addresses. The authority of the law toward believers. The authority of the law toward believers. And friends, this is a matter of life and death to us. Or you maybe could better say it's a matter of death and life. Paul gives notice in verses 1 through 6. Paul gives a principle. And then he gives an example And then he gives an application to the relationship of believers toward the law. Now, we're just going to walk through chapter 7 here quite a bit. Stop along the way. Read a few road signs. Make sure we understand the journey. Follow Paul's thought. But notice what he says, the principle. What is the principle about the authority of the law in relation to believers? Verse 1, here's the principle. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law... ...that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now, that makes pretty clear sense. (laughs) When you're dead, (laughs) the law doesn't have any authority... (laughs) Okay? You don't have to go read the Ten Commandments in the cemetery, all right? But now, Paul, to make sure we understand, he's not talking about physically dead people, he's talking about Christians. He uses an example from the law, verses two through four. Here's his example. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while she lives but if her husband dies she is released from the law of marriage accordingly she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive but if her husband dies she is free from the law and if she marries another man she is not an adulteress likewise my brothers you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God now watch the example the example here he's saying if a, a woman is married her husband dies She's free to marry again. And then he kind of reverses it and says, this is what's happened. In a sense, we've died with Christ. Christ died for sin, our sins. Now Christ has risen so that we might be joined to him in a brand new life. We're not united with just someone who died, right? We are united with someone who's alive. We are free because we are bound to our living Lord. Now, this is the example that Paul is using. But then he applies it to us. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, that is, before we came to know Christ, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members, that is, our body, to bear fruit for death. But now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now again, he... ...reverses or mixes the metaphors... Uh, we, ...we say in writing or speaking... ...you shouldn't mix your metaphors... ...but Paul can do that. Why? Because he's Paul. That's the reason he can do that. He says, now likewise... ...you have, you have died. You died in Christ. The old you died in Christ. You came to know him. The old you The B.C.U. died. And now you are alive in Christ. You are alive. You are free in the Lord Jesus. This is the believer. Understanding the believer's connection with the authority of the law. We have died to the old way of seeking to please God by law keeping. Which we could not do. Christ fulfilled the law for us. He died. And then He rose again. And we in Him have died to the old life. And now we have a new life. This is a beautiful thing the Lord is sharing with us. So that we can wrap our minds around what? Our identity in Jesus Christ. You cannot live beyond your understanding Of your identity and so Paul is wanting to make that very clear. Now Paul is a skilled debater and so Paul anticipates the question that's going to be asked to what he just said. He he anticipates it and he, he says well then here's the question. Well what was the ministry of the law? I mean why was the law given? What's the ministry of the law if it did not bring us life? What's the ministry? Well, to answer that question, Paul does it in the most powerful way. Here's how he does it. He shares his own spiritual autobiography. He tells us his story. And this is what makes Romans chapter 7... Becomes so much more understandable for us. Because the Apostle Paul. Who used to be Saul. Who used to be the most pharisaical of the Pharisees. Who became the great Apostle Paul. Who was the enemy of Christ. And now becomes the champion for Christ. He tells us his story. As we read the rest of this chapter. And so he... Ask the question, what is the ministry of the law? What, what what was that all about? Here's his answer. Number one, he says, the law exposes sin. The law exposes sin. Look at verse seven. What shall what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, God forbid, the King James renders it. The law cannot be sinful. Why? Because where did the law come from? It came from God. It's God's law. And God's law cannot be sinful. And Paul says, yet if it had not been for the law, what's the next word? I. Not everybody at once, okay? I, here's his autobiography, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now what is sin? What does the word sin mean? The most common word for sin in the New Testament means to miss the mark. To come short of the standard. To not measure up to the standard from God. What is Paul saying? He said, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't even know what the standard was. And if it wasn't for the law, I would not even know that I was a sinner. You see, friends, it is God's law that defines what our sin is. If there is no standard, everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. If truth is relative, then there's no such thing as right and wrong. And don't forget that. That is the absolute broad way to any society going straight to hell. When there is no absolute truth, then everyone is free to make up their own truth. Paul says there was truth. And God's truth showed what sin is and it revealed that's what I am. I'm a sinner. That's what he's saying. If it hadn't been for the law, he would have thought... I'm doing just fine, like the rich young ruler when he asked Jesus, What must a man do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord responded to him, giving several of the commandments. And what did the rich young ruler say? These things I've done since my youth, what do I now lack? One of the gospels says Jesus looking at him loved him. And he loved him so much to say this to him. If you would be complete, go sell all you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And the Bible says the man went away sorrowfully for he had great possession. What was his problem? That he was rich? No. His problem was he really did not worship God. He worshipped himself and it showed up in his money. What did Jesus do? Jesus showed the man, the idol in his heart, And the reality that he was not a perfect law keeper. As a matter of fact, he had broken the very first law. You shall have no other gods before me. See that? Paul's experience was just that. He thought he measured up until he found out what? really sin was and he found out I didn't measure up I don't measure up. and then he's found out something even more and this is even more difficult to learn about yourself that the law encourages sin (laughs) the law encourages sin now before you call for an elder meeting to have me voted out (laughs) Just before that happens, read the Bible. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. This powerful thing called sin. seized the opportunity of the commandment. You shall not covet. And what happened? It produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Again, is he saying that the law is sinful? No. But there's something so wrong with him, himself, and we identify with it. There's something so wrong that when God gives a commandment, To not do something. It actually stirs up within us. A desire to go do the very thing. God says not to do. I can give you an illustration of this. We've got a building project going on here. Big one. Lord willing we hope to open the nursery wing here in just a couple of weeks or so. But in that wing... Walls wet with fresh paint, signs put up, fresh paint, do not touch, (laughs) guess what, fingerprints. Now listen carefully, not fingerprints down low here. (laughs) Where children who couldn't read touched it. No, up here, where people who could read the sign touched it. Once you know we had those fingerprints analyzed, <laughs> we know who you are. We'll be sending each of you a building fund envelope. Because if you want to play, you got to pay. That's just the way it is. (laughs) Isn't that something? Do not touch. Anything sinful about that? Anything wrong? No. What happens? Where does that come from? It doesn't come from God. And we can't say, the devil made me do it. (laughs) It's within us. Now, that's a very, very mild illustration. But it's just that way with us. We, apart from the Lord, are so bad that His law actually encourages us to sin. Not God's fault. It's in us. But what else does the law do? Quickly, God's law excludes the sinner. It encourages sin. But by our breaking of God's law, it excludes the sinner. Verse 9 through 11. I was once... Now follow Paul. This is I. He's talking about himself. I was once alive apart from the law. What does that mean? I once thought I'm okay. I'm good. But when the commandment came, sin came alive in me. I broke the law and I thought I was alive, but I was dead I died. That very commandment that in keeping. I thought would promise me life, it actually proved to be death to me. For sin, that that thing of sin, seizing an opportunity, took the commandment and deceived me, and by that deception, killed me. Does this remind you of how ancient this is? All the way back to the Garden of Eden? What? Have everything you want. Anything you want. Freely. It's yours, my children. I give it to you. But, one command. The fruit of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. You shall not touch it. You shall not eat it. And that author of sin, that dreadful serpent, Satan, came and questioned, put a question mark. Did God actually say this? You mean God said to you, a free person with all your great dignity? As his image bearer, you who are masters of the creation, you can eat that piece of fruit. Did God actually say that? Then he just lied. You won't die. And here's what's going on. God doesn't want you to have this because there's things he knows you can only know if you eat this. What happened? What was for their own good, Adam and Eve? Do not do this. They listened to the tempter, the enemy of God. They chose the enemy of God's word over God's word himself. They chose to do what they wanted. And what happened? Death came upon them. Spiritual death, and it passed into this world. See, do you understand Paul's testimony? It's the testimony of every Christian. Here in verse 9, this father, what he's saying. In verse 9, I was once alive apart from sin. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, I died. The very commandment, the promise, life to me, brought death. For sin, seeing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. What is Paul saying here? The law did this. And though it's my responsibility, God showed me something out of it. And that led me to a gift, a new life. How did it happen? The law killed... My marriage, in a sense. It killed my marriage to what? My self-righteousness. I was so sure. I'm okay. I'm married to my self-righteousness. I am a law keeper. I please God. But then the law showed me what sin is. It actually stirred up the old sin in me so that I violated it. And that led to my death. But then what did that do? That death prepared me for a new marriage. A marriage not to my self-righteousness, which I have none, but a marriage to a Savior and His righteousness. Look at verse 4. This is what Paul is saying. Do you hear it? Like my wise my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You cannot be married to your self-righteousness and be united with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Christ died. For your self-righteousness. And now he's alive. And believing that he died for your marriage to your self-righteousness. And he is alive. You can now be married to him. Who is your savior for a new life. You see this is Paul's testimony. What is Paul describing? He's describing here, he's describing freedom, how he became free, freedom from the law. That's what Paul is describing. Paul goes on to help us understand we are free people. We are married to Christ. We're not under the law to try to earn our self-righteousness, which we could not do. But now what does Paul help us understand? That even having this freedom, this new life, we have struggled. You you remember the title of this message? You say, of course I don't remember it. (laughs) The struggles of the free. The struggles of the free. Paul is giving, what's he giving? His spiritual autobiography. And he is saying, I became free from the law in Christ. But I still have a struggle going on. It's a different kind of struggle, it's, it's a battle. What's it a battle with? It is a battle with. A law, a law, and you're going to understand why I say that. Paul talks about this battle that he has. He's free from the law, trying to keep God's law and earn self-righteousness. He's free from that, and now he's a free man, but there's still a struggle going on with another law. Another power. And friend, this is what helps you to understand everything Paul is saying. He's been talking about the law, the law of God. And now he says, I struggle with something that is like a law. It's like a power that's still with me. Listen to him read the, uh, tell his autobiography here. Verse 12. Let's listen to his words. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy. It's righteous and it's good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good. The death wasn't in the law. It was sin in me that produced the death. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. He says, I, I came to understand through the law it was a gift to me how I needed Christ's righteousness, not my self-righteousness. For we know, verse 14, that the law is spiritual. But I am of the flesh. Sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. Can anybody here say, "Mm mm-hmm, to that? I, I don't even understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want... I agree with God's law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but that sin dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, here it comes. Do not miss verse 21. This is the key. So what have I found out? I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. There is another law, a power. Not the law of God, which is good and holy. There is still in me a power, a force that's not good. And it desires. It's like a law, a power in my life. For I delight in the law of God according to my inner being... Who I really am in Christ. But I see in my body. Another law. Another power. Waging war against the law of my mind. Who I am in Christ. It's bringing me captive to a power of sin. That dwells in my members. Now let's Take a moment to look at this. Paul's describing a battle. I think that's pretty clear. Wouldn't you agree? But it's our battle too. And every Christian here knows it. If you don't understand what Paul's talking about, mark it down. You are not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you will know in your heart by experience What Paul is talking about. He's talking about a battle. So who are the combatants? Who are the combatants in this battle? Who is fighting in this civil war of the soul? That's what I call this. The civil war of the soul. Who are the combatants? Make sure you understand who's fighting here. Verse 22, Paul says, it's I... Who's fighting, verse 18, the flesh. There's I, the new me in Christ, and the flesh. That old body, the the old mind, the old tapes that I still have. Verse 22, there's my inner being. There's my mind in Christ. But verse 17, there's this remaining sin power of sin that's in me there's this remaining evil that's in me it's it's I'm like a a man with a new mind and a new understanding but I I still have verse 24 a body of of death I, I know I have a new identity I am a new person But my body and my brain and my will. It's what the Bible calls the flesh. This body, this old brain of ours that is the force for our will, it struggles against all that's new about us. Listen carefully. Now, listen carefully, church. Paul is describing a battle. But now listen carefully, it's not a battle between two natures. I'm disappointed with the New International Translation says the old nature here. That's not from the Greek, the word is sarx, which means flesh, body, brain, emotion. The battle is not between two natures, listen carefully. Read your Bible carefully. A Christian does not have two natures. Bible's Bible is very clear on that. Colossians 3, 9. We have laid aside the old self and put on the new self. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. Listen carefully. A Christian is not one half a new creation. Jesus did not say you would almost be born again. He didn't say part of you would be born again. You don't have two natures. So what's the conflict? If if it feels like this, what's the conflict? The conflict is not two natures. Here's the conflict. Listen carefully. It's a new person in an old body. A new person in an old body. You say old body, you're telling me, I know. I looked in the mirror this morning. <laughs> I saw fulfilled before my eyes the scripture the outer man is perishing, <laughs> okay? <laughs> what is a Christian? Listen, you won't understand the battle. You're going to live a spiritually schizophrenic life unless you understand this. You don't have two natures. Here's the reality if you're a Christian. You are a redeemed person inside an unredeemed body. Our spirits are saved. Our bodies, not yet. And praise God, it's not yet. Not never. Here's three moments I want you to understand that are going to make up your life. Have made up your life and will make up your life, church. Make sure you understand them. What are the moments of a Christian in their experience? Number one, there's the moment of salvation when a new spirit is given to you. You are regenerated. You are born again. You are given a new spirit. New spirit still have this old body, old brain. Then there's going to come the moment of death for you. What happens at the moment of death? Your new spirit leaves your old body. That's what happens at the moment of death. Your new spirit leaves your old body. But that's not it. There's coming someday a moment of resurrection. A moment a moment of resurrection. What will happen then? The Bible says in a moment your new spirit will be returned to a resurrected brand new body. Amen. And you will forever be a renewed spirit in a brand new renewed body like his glorious body. That's what's going on. When you got saved, you got a new spirit in your old body. When you die, your new spirit's going to leave this old body. And when Jesus comes back, you are going to have a new spirit in a brand new body. That's what's going to happen. That is the truth. But until then... Until then, in our earthly life, we have a battle between our new nature and our old flesh, our old body, which isn't just skin and bones, it's that brain. It's that central processing center of who we are. Paul says... Galatians 5 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. This is the conflict. It's a common conflict. This is not just worldly Christians. Do not think you're reading here about worldly Christians. This is the Apostle Paul, a pretty good Christian. And he's talking about his battle. He uses the word I 27 times. Spiritual people in reality, listen church, struggle the most. Because as you grow in the Lord, you grow in the awareness of your weakness. You grow in the awareness of of how you don't measure up to his law. And as you grow in the Lord, you also become a threat to the old devil. And as you grow in the Lord, you're not walking the same path other people walk. You have values that are different from everybody else and it's hard. It's not fun being feeling like you're weird or even being told you're weird. But praise God, Better to be aligned with Him than to fit in in this old world. If you walk with Jesus, you will always have your face into the wind of this world. It's a continual conflict. Verse 14 to 25, every verb in there is present tense. It's a conflict so real, so continual... Here's what Paul does. He just cries out. He cries out. Wretched man. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And thank God Paul quickly answers his own fearful cry of desperation. He answers it with a faith filled faith-filled cry of declaration. The conquest. The conquest is the victor. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I will. I will be delivered. This battle will not go on forever. I still will struggle in my mind serving the Lord Jesus Christ. My flesh struggling pulling toward this Sinful world. But it won't always be this way. Deliverance will come. And that deliverance will ultimately come. But we can even experience that victory. And that's what chapter 8 is all about. Now we're going to receive our communion. But just focus with me please. Please. What should be our response to this? Friend, listen. Sometimes we get encouraged just knowing somebody else is discouraged. Don't look so spiritual, okay? We read about Paul's struggle. Doesn't it just help you a little bit, honestly? I I really am a Christian. (laughs) I'm not much of a Christian, but I'm a Christian. But make sure you do this. Make sure you do this. Rejoice in the victory. What's the Bible say? Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say what? I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Someone as well said, Satan comes along, he reminds you of your past. He reminds you of what a failure you are in the present. Don't argue with him, just remind him of his future. (laughs) Because he's going to hell and you're going to heaven. Rejoice in your Savior. And then be relentless, relentless in the battle. I will not stop this battle. I am a victor in Jesus Christ. I'm struggling in this life of freedom, but I will struggle. I know the victory's coming. I know greater is He that is in me than He that is in the world. I will not stop. I will not give in. I may fall down, but I'll get up. I may fall, but I'll fall forward. I'll press on. It may be three steps forward, two steps back, but I'm making progress. Now I'm going to keep on. You've got to involve yourself in this struggle. Pastor made a visit to a man who had a beautiful garden. The pastor said, sir, the Lord has given you a beautiful garden. And the man said, well, pastor, you should have seen it when the Lord had it all to himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the garden is the Lord. But the man had to work it. He had to weed it. He had to stay after it. God gave the garden, but he had to work. My friend, we got to be relentlessly working the garden of our souls. Amen. We have the garden of paradise in our heart from the Lord. But we got to weed it all the time. Let's pull some weeds today. How about that? As a matter of fact, the Lord has given us this time of communion so that we can examine ourselves. We can ask the Lord where we are in relationship with Him. We can confess. In confessing our sins, we can be assured that if we confess our sins, what? He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This moment is to remind us to look within, to deal with our sin, but also to look back to our Savior, His sacrifice. And we're going to do this always looking up. Why? We're to do this until when? Until Jesus comes. Let's tell him that we love him as we even take this communion. We struggle, but we love him. Doug lead us. Let's just no join us no for time.